Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. We take so much for granted today and in this country, access to experts, ready access to information via the internet. Before there was better access and availability of bandwidth and the internet, it was a challenge to provide the best care to remote areas. It was not long ago that internet access and bandwidth were a challenge so much so that there was a whole industry focused on compression and minimizing data as much as possible to make the best use of bandwidth. Bandwidth can still be limited, but it has rapidly increased, allowing for quicker access to resources online. Healthcare has improved the availability of specialists, although not universally, and as you've heard in other episodes, it remains unevenly distributed, and there's much inequity in access for multiple reasons. In many other parts of the world, these resources and the internet have improved, but remain limited. These limits are driving innovation, and for some specific problems, have been truly life-changing. In the case of one project from some years back, when bandwidth was measured in kilobytes, young pregnant mothers in remote villages were faced with a difficult choice. For the vast majority, home birth, with the support of local resources and midwives, was the best option. It was mostly safe and meant avoiding a long, sometimes days-long trek to a medical facility that placed an undue burden on the family unit. But in a small percentage of cases, a specific clinical problem could mean catastrophe during childbirth, with the likely loss of life. A simple ultrasound would diagnose this and allow for these mothers to safely deliver under specialized care in a hospital. The answer at the time was to train local resources to acquire ultrasounds, send the files through the available network, and receive a reply by text message. Safe to stay at home, or you need to deliver in the hospital. At the time, this decision was based on a radiologist reading those images and responding, and it could take some time, but the impact was huge. This was saving not just one life, but two, the baby and the mother. The impact on local village families was enormous. Today, we still have access issues driven by lack of skilled resources in some areas, but we do have the bandwidth that can allow for rapid sharing of data and communication, and this can be used to address the challenges of access for enormous numbers of chronic patients suffering from diabetes who are at risk of diabetic retinopathy. Join me on Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Jennifer Lim, She's a distinguished professor of ophthalmology at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the vice chair of ophthalmology. 
Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. It's my pleasure to be here today. Thanks for having me. So uh, we generally know that diabetes is a, a large problem throughout our uh, community, not just in the U.S., but actually worldwide. Um, and diabetes has a large number of system problems, but specifically, we see it uh, impacting people's vision. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what the uh, frequency is in the general population. Yes, with diabetes, unfortunately, you know, multiple systems can be affected. And unfortunately, one of them is the ophthalmic system. And the longer a patient has diabetes, the higher the chance that they're going to have what we call diabetic retinopathy. And what that can mean, can mean that the patient may have findings in their eye, but no symptoms, or it can mean that the patient has visual symptoms and also has a diabetic retinopathy findings. So it's really important that a patient with diabetes gets checked because they may have findings that can result in loss of vision, but not yet know it. In other words, they may be completely asymptomatic. And in fact, in a study that was done at the Joslin Eye Center, the vast majority of patients who have vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy had no idea at all that their eyes were involved. And this is really, really key for patients to understand. And the fact is, is that once you've had diabetes for around 10 years, more than likely you're going to have some form of diabetic retinopathy in your retina and that you should be checked on an ongoing basis at least once a year. And the recommendations basically are that a type two diabetic should have a baseline examination at the time of diagnosis. And then a patient who's type one within five years should have their initial diabetic retinopathy evaluation and follow-up based on what is present in their retinas. So this reminds me a lot of hypertension, um, you, you know, that silent killer that essentially people walk around with and say, I feel great, but they could have, you know, astoundingly high numbers. We certainly see that in clinical practice. And like hypertension, which is treatable, we can treat high blood pressure very effectively. That's also true for diabetic retinopathy. How do we go about that? Um, what, what are the treatments and what is the, the process? So absolutely, it's treatable. And early on, if a patient has blurred vision and we examine them and we find they have swelling of their retina, which is termed diabetic macular edema, we now have excellent treatments. We have drugs called anti-vascular endothelial growth factor or anti-VEGF for short. And these drugs combat the leakiness of the blood vessels that occurs with diabetes. And by virtue of that fact, it actually dries up the retina. So an anti-VEGF is injected into the eye with, of course, anesthetic, so the patients are comfortable. And this anti-VEGF results in resolution of the swelling of the retina. Now, granted, it does require repeat therapy, and it can require repeat ther therapy initially every month until we get the disease under control. But by far, usually within two years, if a patient has diabetic macular edema, we can get that under control and the number of injections is markedly less. So for instance, Nick, in the first year, they need on average nine injections of anti-VEGF. In year two, they may need five or six. In year three, three or four. And then thereafter, maybe one or two, and then eventually maybe even none. So it's not an ongoing, never-ending process. So that's for the diabetic macular edema. For the other problem, which is the bleeding within the retina or 
In some cases, the more severe form where patients have abnormal blood vessels growing on the surface of the retina that can result in detachment of the retina and severe visual loss or hemorrhaging into the eyeball and severe visual loss, we also have treatments. So when it's proliferative diabetic retinopathy, say, where they have abnormal blood vessels growing where they shouldn't be, we have two good treatments for that. We can either give them an injection, which I mentioned before, the anti-VEGF, or we can laser the patient. And laser's been around for over 50 years. And laser has been proven to work. But it you know, has some side effects. And so that's why anti-VEGFs are also tried. And it's really up to the retina specialist to decide which treatment is best for that patient. But either of those two treatments can control the diabetic retinopathy, make those blood vessels go away in the vast majority of patients and save vision. Now in the last category of patients who have very severe visual loss, so they've got bleeding into the eyeball and it's not clearing or they have a retinal detachment, we have vitrectomy. And vitrectomy surgery can fix those problems. In other words, I can go inside the eye, remove the blood. I can go inside the eye and fix the retinal detachment. And hopefully if the patient still has viable retina and not bad, what we call ischemia, we can give them back vision. So that's all fantastic news, but I think ultimately the challenge that we have with this is that like many of these chronic diseases and hypertension, you know, I'll refer back to it. We see people walking around and I, I think it's, it's a truism throughout medicine that the earlier you get to the diagnosis or the problem that's occurring, the better the outcomes is. That's true in this case, but we're not doing that today. Uh, what, what are the sort of numbers that we see in terms of screening and you know, approach to this? You said we should be doing it once a year. How much of that is going on? You know, unfortunately, Nick, only at best 30 to 50% of patients undergo their annual diabetic retinopathy screening examination. And that really is a tragedy because you hit the nail on the head. Earlier diagnosis and earlier treatment absolutely can save vision. And so that's what we're trying to do in patients with any disease and particularly in diabetes, where a lot of this visual loss can be prevented if diagnosed and treated early on. So what do we need to do? We need to see these patients and we need to be able to get them to be treated when needed. So the big question is how do we screen these patients, right? In the past, we've said, why not just send these patients for a general ophthalmic examination? Well, that's well and good if a patient will go ahead and follow up there, and if there's somebody nearby who can do that eye exam. Unfortunately, even in the United States today, there is a shortage of healthcare eye care providers in certain communities, particularly in the rural and underserved areas. And so the question is, how can we get these patients to be diagnosed in a timely fashion? So people have said, why not have telescreening programs? And so telescreening programs have been implemented, particularly in the rural and underserved areas. And basically these telescreening programs have shown us that yes, we can actually get more patients and we can diagnose patients and it has a positive impact. That is more patients are screened and of those patients who are screened, more treatable diseases picked up and indeed, there is a positive impact on healthcare. The problem with the telescreening, though, is that one, it's expensive. 
Two, you need to drive this mobile unit to places, so that requires people to do that. And then you need somebody to read the images. So the physician doesn't drive around in the van because that'd be too expensive. Pictures are taken, images are sent, someone has to read the images, relay back the information, and then that information has to get in a timely fashion to the patient so that they can then be referred to the specialist if needed. So there's a little bit of a disconnect in terms of when the patient finds out after they're examined, unlike a real live visit, right? So if they go to the retina specialist or a general ophthalmologist, they'll be dilated. Patient will get a diagnosis on that spot and be told if they need a treatment and when to come back. So to, to be clear, the challenge with this uh, telehealth, and, and when you say tele, I think most people understand that to be, you know, the video uh, experience, but that's it, it, that's not what you're talking about. If you're talking about a mobile van, it's going out into the communities, recording those images, and then shooting them back. But there's a delay in that process, clearly, because it has to be read. There's a whole um, you know time delay, which of course, from a patient, especially in the rural state, they may have come some distance to actually access that. Is, is that the case? I just want to be sure I'm understanding that correctly. You're absolutely correct, Nick. And the telehealth part, the name telescreening comes from the fact that it is remote for the person reading the eye images and the images that are taken. That's the, the telescreening part. Okay, so that, that's good. We've seen improvements. Um, you, you know, obviously that gets out into these uh, difficult to reach communities, but there's a better way. I think so. And I think the way to do this is to bring a unit to where the patient is being seen for their diabetic examination or their general physical examination if they have mild diabetes and are not seeing a diabetic specialist and get a unit into that office at point of care and do point of care screening. Now, ideally you could have an ophthalmologist sit in that office, dilate every single patient that comes through, diagnose them and tell them what their diagnosis is, whether they need treatment, when and if to come back for treatment or when they should just come back for their next screening evaluation. Wouldn't be practical, but in an ideal world, you could do that. But there is a better way and possibly even a way that's even more sensitive, you know, I hate to say it as an ophthalmologist, than having a human being do this live screening. You know, we know from studies that have been done that if you take a picture of someone's retina and then you send it to trained graders, you're going to pick up more retinopathy in general and be able to label it more specifically as to the grade of the diabetes than an examiner looking at that patient. Now, that's not to say that an examiner looking at the patient is going to miss vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy, but they might miss that little hemorrhage out in the periphery for one reason or another, say the patient is unable to really cooperate you know, fully with the exam and the examiner's looking for high-risk retinopathy. So seeing a little hemorrhage out in the periphery, it's not really going to change their management, right? But if you take a picture, you're not going to miss that little hemorrhage. And that's definitely been shown. And a lot of times in studies that have been done, the reason that ophthalmologists undergrade, say, the photos in terms of the diabetic retinopathy scaling system or severity score system is that a hemorrhage is taken as a microaneurysm. 
so that's you know misgraded as that, or maybe it's missed, or maybe you don't see the little microaneurysm. So there's some of the nuances there that explain why an ophthalmologist may not be as accurate as looking at a photograph. So more recently, artificial intelligence has entered the game. And people who are really smart using computer programmers have figured out how you can take an image, train an artificial intelligence system to recognize that image as having diabetic retinopathy and being able to grade it specifically with regard to the diabetic retinopathy severity score system. So the, let, let's make sure that people understand this. This is taking those same images or, you know, essentially the images that you were talking about in the telehealth and the, the mobile van, but creating a, a unit that will take those images and then scan them using an artificial intelligence, potentially in the cloud. So using, uh, is that how it's done or is it done locally? And will provide immediate feedback that, as you described, is in some instances, in fact, it, it's actually better than or can be better than that provided by a specialist and is entirely repeatable. Is that the case and, and how does that work? That's correct, Nick. And so what happens is, is that you can train these artificial intelligence networks with regards to diabetic retinopathy, and it takes hundreds of thousands of images. You know, so there are two approved FDA approved imaging systems that are autonomous, meaning that they take 45 degree photographs using a human person actually to take that picture. The picture is then sent up to the cloud where the image is read and a diagnosis is rendered all within one minute. It's wow. pretty amazing. Yeah, so image of the right eye, image of the left eye. And it's actually not just one image, it's two images. And they're 45 degree field of view images. And these images are read within, like I said, a minute. And a diagnosis is made as to whether there is more than mild diabetic retinopathy or vision threatening diabetic retinopathy. So what does that mean? Well, more than mild diabetic retinopathy means that this patient has retinopathy that is more than just a little microaneurysm and that this person should be followed by a trained ophthalmic care person, like an ophthalmologist, general ophthalmologist, or a retina specialist. If we see vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy, what that means is that patient has that diabetic macular edema, the swelling of the macula, and that is vision-threatening, and that person must be referred to a retina specialist to get that treated. Or it could mean that the patient has proliferative diabetic retinopathy, severe diabetic retinopathy that also requires attention. So this is really exciting. I mean, you, you've basically taken, uh, um, uh, I, I want to call it a manual process, but there was technology involved, the teleconsult going out. You've created, or we, we have a solution that can be installed in, I guess, diabetic clinics um, physician offices, and you're talking about, I'm going to call it an instant read. One minute is, you know, as, as good as instant in, in my world, certainly the number of times or the hours that I've waited in physician offices, that <laughs> will seem fast. Um, and now you've got instant read and a, a, a direct action from that, which falls into, we don't need to do anything, come back in, you know, whatever the appropriate period, but then also the follow-up. And, you know, the follow-ups are essentially urgent referrals because they're not going to be treated in that setting. Is that correct? 
That's absolutely correct, Nick. And it, it seems like something that's futuristic, but the future is now. We have these machines. There are two of them. One is called the IDXDR, and the other one is called the iArt system. And both of these machines, based on these images that are taken by a person using this self-contained machine, can give a diagnosis for that patient within one minute. So I, as you think about this, I mean, this must be exciting, but a little bit concerning. I mean, you're an ophthalmologist. This is, I, I don't want to say core business, but it's certainly a, a, a central part. Um, I, I don't think this is replacing you, um, but it, you know, it, it feels there's a little bit of that, but also we can extend. And to me, the balance seems exactly right. Is that true? That's absolutely right. You know, we are not reaching all of those patients who have to be screened. That's the problem, right? And so this machine is helping us screen those patients. And so by virtue of that fact, it actually is helping us because we are not using our resources in terms of retina specialists, general ophthalmologists to screen patients, but rather to treat the ones and follow the ones who are at higher risk of progression until they need treatment. And so these machines have been compared in terms of their sensitivity and specificity to a general ophthalmologist or to a retina specialist. And what we found, and I must say it's humbling, is that the machines have higher sensitivity than a general ophthalmologist and they have higher sensitivity than a retina specialist. For instance, in a paper that we wrote using the iArt system, in general, retina specialists had a sensitivity of about 59.5% compared to the machine's sensitivity at around 97%. For the general ophthalmologist, it was the same. General ophthalmologist, the machine sensitivity was 97%, but the general ophthalmologist had a sensitivity of around 20%, so markedly lower. There were cases of vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy that were missed by the general ophthalmologist, but not fortunately for the retina specialists. So that made me feel better because you know we have training to pick up uh, these uh, severe forms of retinopathy. But what this tells me is that these are really assistive. If we had these machines there, we would capture these patients who otherwise would not be diagnosed, number one. And number two, we're also gonna be having more work for everybody, right? There's gonna be more vision-threatening retinopathy found. We're gonna have patients who need to be followed more closely and we're gonna be able to get these patients the care that they need. And specifically, as I said, when we started, there are a lot of patients in underserved areas in rural communities where having such an autonomous system is really gonna be helpful. It's gonna help them get to their appointments because they, all they have to do is go there to the general, of the general uh, office, primary care, and they can get their screening exam and not have to waste resources driving all the way to find a specialist just to be told that come back in a year, right? So hopefully that when they do have to make the ride, it's for a treatment reason or because there's a much higher risk of progression. I, I Quite frankly, exciting news. I think it's, you know, very clear, um, you know, in my experience, I don't walk around falling over ophthalmologists that have got nothing to do, um, you, you know, extraordinarily busy. And we're taking a subset of this. We're doing it better. It's not really surprising because machines, you know, have no tiredness, no, 
repetitive issues of seeing and you know distractions very focused um, this is not replacing it's augmenting and it's delivering better care to those that don't have access very exciting news Jennifer thanks for joining me today thanks so much Nick it's my pleasure to talk to you today about AI and its applications for help in diabetic retinopathy screening there is so much potential for this AI image technology for other related diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma. But for now, solving this one chronic but highly treatable disease, diabetic retinopathy, is great news. This FDA cleared system is able to autonomously detect diabetic retinopathy in a clinical setting in the space of minutes. This has great potential to positively influence the low rate of compliance with screening and with a high rate of accuracy. Your better pill to swallow is to find ways to incorporate these technologies into your clinical setting, further distributing access to essential care and treatment in a population that is in most need of access. Estimates vary of the rates of undiagnosed, but they're likely more than 20% and they go untreated with those numbers impacting ethnic groups more in another instance of inequality. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash HUD for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.